If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Romans this morning. We're going to start chapter one. And we this morning are going to take a, uh, a view of the forest. Um, so far, we've talked about being in the gospel and understanding the foundations of the gospel and how important that is for our church this year. This theme, the theme for our year is foundations and this series we've been doing foundations of the gospel. So what we've done is said, hey, we know the gospel. We know like the forest of the gospel. Well, let's break that down and let's get down into the trees, right? Because you don't want to miss the forest for the trees is what they normally say, but sometimes you don't want to miss the trees for the forest as well. You want to flip that around. So instead of looking at the gospel overview, we've been going verse by verse through Romans to say, let's look at the small, individual, intricate parts of the gospel to see what each of those mean to us. And we found that there's this shape to the gospel. God, man, Christ and our response, there is a God, we've sinned against him, he sent Jesus to fix that problem, and we respond in a certain way. So we've kind of gone through the forest looking at each individual tree. Well, now that we've come to the end of Romans 4, we're going to step back and instead of examining each individual tree, we're going to step back and look at the whole forest to see the beauty of the gospel. Just like maybe a clock, if you, if you took a clock or a watch apart and put out all the pieces, you'd be amazed at all of the amazing pieces of a watch or a clock. But having those things set apart from one another and taken apart doesn't do you any good until it's all put back together and you can really appreciate what the clock or the watch does now that you've seen the insides of it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Romans chapters 1 through 4 to kind of get that big picture because I chose to go through this so that we might have a grasp of the gospel. I chose to go through Romans chapter 1 through 4 that we would have a grasp of the gospel. First of all, that we would know what the gospel is. That we would know what the gospel is. Because the scary truth is, a lot of people that sit in pews like these pews, in churches like this church, in towns like this town, don't truly know the gospel message of Christ. Billy Graham said that, as much as 85% of people that go to church, members of churches, are not saved. That's staggering. That's staggering. I think it's similar to something Jesus said, right? He said in Matthew 7 that many are going to come to me that day and say, Lord, I knew you. And he's going to say, I never knew you. You're going to say, Lord, I did all these things for you. I served in the church. I was a member. I got baptized. I did all these things. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. So I'm pleading with the Lord that this morning and for our church that that would not be the case, that we would not be that statistic that there's 85 percent of us, as Billy Graham estimated, that don't know the Lord. So this morning we're going to come face to face with Romans one through four, face to face with the gospel so that you might know for sure. Am I do I know the Lord? Am I known by God? So when we think about the, the overview of Romans, we're going to look at kind of four, the four sections of Romans, uh, chapters one through four. And then I'm going to ask you four pointed questions at the end, four sections of Romans and then four questions at the end. First, when we look at the book of Romans, we see the introduction. We see the introduction of Paul. Paul steps on the scene and in Romans chapter one, verse one, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's identity in this is wrapped up 
in the gospel of God. He says, my whole identity, the way I define myself is servant of Jesus Christ, servant of Jesus Christ, and set apart for the gospel of God. He's wrapped up in this. So Paul's resume is that he's a servant of Christ. Paul's purpose is this, getting to the unreached. As Paul introduces himself, he then goes on to say in verse 1, verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the Gentiles. I'm under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul's purpose in writing them was to say, hey, I'm coming to you. I hope to come to you so that I can preach the gospel among you. Interesting that he's saying, I want to preach the gospel to people who believe the gospel, right? He's called these people the saints in Rome, but he wants to come preach the gospel to them. That means the gospel never stops having impact on you. The gospel is not the foundations that you lay and then you step away from them and not talk about them anymore. It's not like um, Jesus 101 and you pass that class and you never talk about it. No, the gospel is the foundation of the church, the foundation of the building. If you don't have the foundation, nothing else works. So Paul wants to come preach the gospel among these Romans. But he also has, might I say, an ulterior motive for coming to them. Because he says in Romans 1, hey, I'm excited to come to see you guys. But then as he finishes his letter, he says this. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what Romans 15 says. He says, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul says, hey, I'm wanting to come see you, but really... I'm coming to see you on my way to Spain. Paul says, I have no more room for work here. I've spread the gospel as much as I can, and I want to go to the edge of my known universe. For Paul, Spain would have been the end of his his Roman world in his mind. He would have been at the end of that. So he says, I want to go where no one's heard the gospel, and I want you guys to help me go there. So the book of Romans really is a missionary support letter. He writes to them saying, I want to come to you, but I also want you to help me go on to other places that don't know the Lord. So if Paul's going to ask these people for help, he's going to assure them of his message, right? So he goes on from saying, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I want to do. I want to come to you. And then this is the message that I'm sharing. This is the message that I'm sharing In one sense, Paul's saying, if I'm going to visit these Christians and be helped by them, I want them to know the gospel that I'm actually going to be sharing. I want them to know the message that they're supporting. So he comes to that thesis statement, that that statement that we've uh, read together. Did you put that in there? Yes. So Josiah, go to that next slide and let's read this thesis statement together because this is what the book of Romans is all about. Let's read this together. One, two, three. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's Paul's message in a nutshell. This is a righteousness of God that's available to all people simply through belief. Paul had to distinguish his gospel from other gospels. We have to do that same thing, church. We have to do that same thing because there are multiple gospels in this world that are false gospels. Let's think about two of those. We have the prosperity gospel and the social gospel. Just to name a few, the prosperity gospel says this. God's desire for you is that you be healthy and wealthy in this life. You can name the things that you want from God and claim those for yourself. There's this prosperity gospel that says God wants you to be have a lot of money and never be sick. And that's the point of Jesus's coming. Well, another gospel would be the social gospel. Social gospel came about in the mid 1900s and it said this. Our purpose as Christians is to transform society, to fix things like alcohol problems, gambling problems, hunger problems, and all kinds of problems like that at the expense of individual transformation. And you can see both of these gospels are similar in that they lose sight of the center of what the gospel is supposed to be, and they get things out of order. They lose sight of the center and they get things out of order. The prosperity gospel is right. Christians will receive all things and be made right and made wealthy and healthy. Only when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth. That's the thing God wants for us, but the timing is out of time. The social gospel is also true, right? God does want a gospel that will transform lives and culture around us. It does want to impact culture, but it loses the centrality of the individual transformation of the individual person that's supposed to then result in cultural transformation. Our goal isn't just to transform culture, it's to let Jesus transform individuals that then go and transform culture. So you can see, we have to know the gospel because what are we passing to people? What are we telling people about how they might be their problem might be fixed. Well, Paul's gospel, he says, it's about righteousness. It's about a right standing with God. Not a righteousness that man makes, but a righteousness that God gives to all people who believe without distinction there are no longer any borders to this gospel. So that's Paul's introduction of himself. After Paul introduces himself and his gospel, then that's when he starts to take a deep dive into what this gospel is. What does he mean by righteousness from God? What's the problem with people? Why do they need that? Well, he goes from the beginning of chapter one to the middle of chapter one, and he brings this, the second point, a charge against humanity. He brings a charge against humanity. Paul points to man's main primary problem. It's that they have rebelled against God and that God's wrath is coming against them. That is, that is humanity's primary problem that they face. See, Paul was... Paul's gospel here is a little bit different than most religions. Most religions will argue that humans are basically good. You get down to the, the very heart of somebody, no matter what they've done in their life, you, you can sit down with them, you can pick toward the, the center of their heart and find out at, at the end that person is a good person. Paul says, no, that's the opposite. Actually, sin has so much changed the DNA of humanity that we are basically bad. Because they were, as Paul says, we have replaced Worshiping the creator with worshiping his creation, namely ourselves. 
We have put ourselves in the place of worshiping ourselves. And that has so much changed our DNA, depraved us, that now the things that we do are not faithful to God. And Paul says, look around us. He says, first, look, the Gentiles, they deny the truth about God. They deny the truth about God. And he goes from verse 18 to verse 25 of chapter 1 and says, they know God, but they deny him with their unrighteous actions. And so God gives them over to their actions. And we see that sin increases as God removes his hand of restraint. And we see that the fact that as we see sin increase in the world, that doesn't disprove the fact that there is a God. It actually proves the fact that there is a God because before he's holding back our sinful actions. But when he removes his hand, as it says here, as he gives them over to sin and they sin more, that proves that there is a God. And he goes on to list, to make a big, large list of sins, right? He mentions homosexuality, coveting, murder, envy, deceit, coveting, uh, covetousness, malice, gossip, slander, pride, disobedience to parents, being foolish, inventing new ways of evil, and then celebrating those new ways of being evil. That's a big, long laundry list that I didn't even hit all of them. And we find our name next to one of those. All of us will find our name next to one of those sins because we, like all people, have gone astray. But maybe there are some, Paul realizes, that might deny that truth. They might say, hey, we don't do all those things. We know God. So he goes from talking about the Gentiles who deny the truth of God to the Jews who hide behind the truth of God. See, the Jewish people, or we can put it onto our context, the religious people, they thought they were good as long as they acknowledge God and they do all their right religious rituals. But Paul comes along and says, no, that's not the case. They said, we know there's a God. We have his book. They said, we know those things that you just mentioned are wrong. We have his law. He said, we know we're in the club because we've got the sign of being in the club, the covenant sign for them. It was circumcision. We're good. We know there's a God. We've got his book and we got his sign. And so we're good to go. But Paul says, no, you're not, because all that religion hasn't made you any different than the Gentiles. All those those religious things that you have on the outside have not done anything to your heart inside. See, humans are hopeless, so hopeless that not even religion can make us right. Not even following a religion can make us right. Because even if you follow the religion perfectly, it only brings you back to zero. It doesn't make you right before God. Because when we sin, we're in the negative. And if we follow religion, that just brings us back to zero. If you go to a a, a bank or you go to somebody that owns a car or a house and you want to buy it from them and you say, hey, guess what? I have no debt. They're going to say, okay, and you need the money to buy it, right? It's not just that you want to prove to people you have no debt. You want to prove to people you have the money to buy it. In the same way, our righteousness, when we sin, that puts us in debt, a a negative standing, If we were just follow religion perfectly, that would just bring us back to zero. That's not what God requires of us. He requires of us righteousness. He requires righteousness from us. So Paul goes from saying, hey, there's Gentiles who deny the truth. There's a bunch of religious Jewish people who hide behind the truth. And that comes to his conclusion that there is no one who is truly righteous. 
And he quotes a bunch of scripture from the Old Testament in chapter 3 to say that no one is righteous. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So Paul has done a beautiful thing, a beautiful job of painting a bleak picture, a sad picture, a picture with no hope. He says, hey, there's a God. He made you and you've rebelled against him. At the end of chapter three or at at this point in chapter three, there's no hope in this. What's the answer to this question? You see, the real problem with humanity, the problem with us is that we've sinned against the holy God. So what are we supposed to do to help a hurting humanity? If you go to work tomorrow, go to school tomorrow, go home tomorrow, tonight, wherever you are, you're going to be able to look around and see the effects of these decisions that we've made. Humanity is hurting. So how do we help their hurting? Do they need affirmation? Do they need health and wealth? Do they need their bellies filled? Do they need a bunch of rules and a religion to follow? No, that's not what they need. All those things are fine and good, but they don't fix the problem. What they need is a righteousness from God. That is what they need, a righteousness, a right standing before this God that they have sinned against. They need, a right, uh, they need forgiveness of sins and a right standing before God. Like a good doctor, we have to prescribe the right medicine to the hurting. If someone has a cancer, then giving them ibuprofen is not going to help their problem. Right? We have to understand what the problem is and give them the right medicine for it. And Paul says the right medicine is righteousness. But in verse 20 of chapter 3, it says this, By works of the law, no human being will be justified or made right in God's sight. So we know the problem is we need to be made right before God. But the problem is there's nothing in this world that can make us right before God. So what does he do? We come to verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21, and we see one of the best words in the English language, but. That means everything that was just said is now negated by what's about to be said. And because there's nothing in this world that can make us right before God, God sends someone into this world that can make us right before him, and that is Jesus. We've seen the introduction of Paul, the charge against humanity, and now the righteousness of Christ. He says in verse 21, But now there is a righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets, although they testify to it. And this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness came through the righteous man who is Christ Jesus. Jesus stepped into this world and he died in your place. As a substitute is what this passage talks about, as a, as, a, uh, as a propitiation, as a substitute for your sins. And this solves a couple problems. Jesus solves some big problems. One, he solves a divine problem. What's the divine problem? Well, it's that God is holy and you're not, and he wants to forgive you. If he's really holy, then he has to punish the sin. He has to punish sin. We, he can't just sweep it under the rug. So what does he do? He brings his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and punishes sin in him. So God, in bringing wrath against Christ, is, made, is shown to be right. God is just. He doesn't just ignore our sin and sweep it under the rug like a bad judge. No, he punishes the sin. 
He's shown to be just. So this solves that divine problem and it solves the human problem, right? Not not only is God shown to be just, but man is also made just. It's as if you and Jesus switch tests. How many of you have ever taken a test and thought, man, that was horrible, but you know that kid in your class that is going to make a 4.0 and you're like, man, I just wish I could just switch tests with that guy. I, I just wish me and that girl could switch tests. That's what Christ allows us to do through faith. He has the perfect ACT score of righteousness and you have the worst ACT score of righteousness. And what he does is he says, let's take these tests and switch them based on the fact that you're trusting in me. Simply turning from your sins, trusting in me, you can have my righteousness. You get his test grade. When you stand before God, like our our song we just sang, when we stand before the Lord and we stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips will still repeat. That's your only hope to stand before God is that Jesus was righteous and you get his righteousness. That's your only hope before a holy God. And he gives that to us, not by jumping through hoops or earning it or living perfectly. He says, I will give this to you for free. Simply believe and trust. Trust in me, turn from your sins. Which brings us to our last point of what Paul, of what Paul points out in Romans. We've seen man's problem. We've seen God's fix for that problem in Jesus. And now we see the necessity of faith. All of that righteousness from Jesus can be made yours simply through faith. The only requirement for us to receive that blessing of justification being made right with God is that we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. Jesus describes it in Mark 1 as repent and believe. Repent and believe for the gospel is near. Repent and believe. If you have a quarter, you took it out of your pocket and you looked at it and I asked you the question, is that quarter heads or is that quarter tails? You'd say... Well, I mean, it's both. It's not one or the other. It's both of those things at the same time. The same thing applies to faith or belief and repentance. Both of those things are just two sides of the same quarter of faith. You cannot believe if you don't repent. You cannot believe if you don't repent. And another way to think about it is if your boat's sinking and their boat isn't, how do you, what, what do you have to do to be saved? Not only do you have to leave your boat, you have to get into their boat. You can't get into their boat lest you leave your boat. Faith and repentance are holding hands. They cannot be separated. And we call the biblical term for that is faith. Faith, that you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. That is faith. And that's the only thing that the Lord requires of you. And that in and of itself isn't something that you muster up on your own and try to, man, I just wish I could have, the, have more faith. It's a gift that God gives you. We think about Abraham, who was not seeking God, was not looking for God. This is where Paul points. He points to Abraham. He wasn't seeking God. He lived in a country far away, serving other gods. And God came to him, said, up, come, go to another country. And he gave him a promise. And eventually, Abraham simply believed that promise. He heard God speak and said, I believe God is who he says he is. I believe God's going to do what God says he's going to do. So Abraham is a perfect example for us. Abraham was made right before God before there was a law. Abraham was made right before God before there was a ritual of circumcision to follow. He was made right simply by faith, and the same thing applies to you as well. You're not made right by living Christianity perfectly. 
You're not made right by doing all the rituals that we have, like getting baptized. You're made right by believing in Jesus. And when that happens, there's a transformation that happens inside of you. You're not just right on the outside. You're made right on the inside. Religion tries to make you right on the outside, but only Jesus makes you right on the inside. And when he does, that rightness that you've been made on the inside starts to come out on the outside. We're not made right by the way we live, but if we are made right, we're going to live right as well. That is the gospel message, that there is a God who has made you, created you in his image, and you've rebelled against that, and you choose not to be like that. He's just, God is just, so he has to punish that sin, but he's also loving and wants to make you right with him again, so he sent his son Jesus, the perfect one, the God-man in the flesh, who lived a perfect life and died for your sins and rose again to give you a new life, and all you have to do to have that forgiveness of sins and that right standing before God is simply turn from your sins and trust in him in faith. That's the beautiful gospel message that Paul lays out in Romans 1 through 4. And that's the gospel message that we need to have as our foundation as the First Baptist Church of Commerce. We, don't, we need to make sure that message is clear. We need to never get over that message. We need, we, need, we need to never think that that message is boring or rudimentary or elementary or something that we get over. I learned that in the past. Now I'm done with it. No, that needs to saturate every decision that we make as a church, the, the visions that we have, as the things that we do, that needs to be everything about us. Especially, we need to know that message as we share it. Because if you muddy that message, you don't heal the world. If you muddy that message, you don't glorify God. That message has to be crystal clear. And if that comes up, if that message comes up in our sermons a lot, over and over, that's because we need to be reminded of it. Because our hearts tend to wander from that. We start to think, what can I add to this to make myself right with God? Am I less right with God today because I didn't have my quiet time? No, you're made right with God through faith. And now you live that faith out. We have to know that's right. So as we come to the end of this, this Romans chapter 1 through 4, of this beautiful outline of the gospel and how we can be made right with God, I want to ask you four pointed questions. And these questions are for you. I don't want anybody in this room to think these, aren't, these questions aren't for me. I, I kind of got that handled in the past. All these questions, these four questions are for you. No one gets to skip these, including me. Number one, first question is this. Do you believe there is a God? Do you believe there is a God? A God that created all things in the universe, including you. Do you believe that you're responsible to that God? That this is a God who's good and loving and that he's righteous and just? And do you realize that he deeply cares about every thought, inclination of your heart? Do you realize there's that kind of God? And also, do you, second, do you admit that you have rebelled against this God? The Bible calls that rebellion sin. And do you realize that that sin cannot be fixed by anything that you've done or that anything that you could do? And do you want to turn away from that sin? Third, do you know the beauty of what Christ has done for you? Do you know the beauty of what Christ has done for you? Do you realize that he was God in the flesh that came to this earth to live a perfect life? Do you realize that he died in your place on the cross? That, that was your death that was meant to be 
died by you? And do you realize that he rose from the dead? Do you believe he rose from the dead to give you new life? And the fourth question is this. Do you have biblical faith? Have you turned from your sin in repentance? And are you now depending on the finished work of Jesus as you're only standing before a holy God? Those four questions. Do you realize there's a God that you're accountable to? Do you realize you sinned against that God? Do you know what Jesus has done for you to be able to make you right with God? And do you believe it? And have you turned from your sins? And are you trusting in Jesus? Your answers to those four questions determines the destiny of your eternity. Those four questions answer what happens after we leave this earth, after we die. And as your pastor, I want to make sure that we have those four questions answered right in our lives, that I have that, those four questions answered right in my life. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I have done all those, I have believed all those things and I've believed those things for years. I want you to praise God and know that if you simply believe those things, you are right with God. Don't be tempted to believe you have to do more because you have trusted in those things and you know those truths of the gospel. You are right with God. So praise him for that. Be thankful that there's no other hoops for you to jump through. There's nothing else you have to do to be made right with him. He looks at you through the eyes, through, through, through the lens of the cross and says, you are right. You're right before me. If you're hearing those things, if you hear those four questions, you say, I've kind of started to put those things together, but I've never put those all together in one, in one moment in my life. But now I do. I would encourage you to come talk to me about that because that means God has opened your eyes to see the beauty of his gospel and he's transforming you. And I would love to talk to you about what that would mean in your life and how you can make that a public decision uh, and, and a display of what God has done in your life and how you might be, make that known to everybody by, by being baptized as a display of that transformation that's happened in you. But either way, I want you to think about the, that gospel truth and those questions, if you answer yes to all those, praise God as we sing. If you answer maybe no to one of those questions, ask God to help you fix that, that attitude in your heart that you might change and turn from your sins. I want to end with this words from an old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, because this is a message to all of us. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, you thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief, true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come, you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merits of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. If you're in Jesus' arms now through faith, praise God for that. If you need to be in Jesus' arms, if you need to be made right with God, would you make that decision today? Let's pray.